you have listeners who are listening to something called Tech Against Terrorism podcast, which means they're probably interested in tech and they're probably interested in terrorism. And guess what? If you're both of those things, you might be a really good trust and safety professional. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm a senior research analyst at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're looking into tech policy, which tackles terrorist and violent extremist content. Most tech companies have some kind of trust and safety team, and their job is to reduce the risk of users being exposed to harm, fraud, or other behaviors that are outside community guidelines. Part of their work is to also reduce the risk of platforms being used by terrorists by working with governments and organizations such as Tech Against Terrorism. My guest today is Charlotte Wilner, and she was one of the first people to do this at Facebook by building and leading the company's first safety operations team. Now, Charlotte is the executive director at the Trust and Safety Professional Association, which works to improve society's understanding of the trust and safety field through education and research programs. I asked her how content moderation has changed since her early days at Facebook. There's a lot more we know now about online radicalization, uh, and there's a lot more resources available to professionals working this angle in trust and safety. Tech Against Terrorism, for example, has a whole resources section that my early team would have found just so helpful. GIFCT is here now. You know, in the early days, we, we didn't have a lot of that set of resources or a lot of that sort of external support. I joined Facebook for context. I joined Facebook before it had truly begun to internationalize. So my team's early focus was actually on mostly domestic extremism. So gangs, white supremacist groups. And as the platform began to be adopted internationally, that was when we had to move pretty quickly to start understanding how violent extremism manifests globally. And I think a lot of people assume, oh, that must have been stuff like Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram. And yes, that was definitely part of it. But it was also like nostalgia for the IRA. You know, in those early days, there wasn't a lot of scholarship around the effect of just how this content manifests, like what these interactions actually were doing in people's lives. So even once you'd found this extremist content, you know, as a trust and safety team, it wasn't immediately clear where the line should be. Someone might upload them. like pictures of their friend group from back in the old days, you'd notice the caption was like, Shokai Arla. And you're like, oh, what does this mean in the context of that photo? Is this like an imminent threat from the IRA? Is this like wistfulness about a time long gone? Uh, so we were just trying to figure out, sort of make our best guess on how to preserve people's free expression and allow them to share some of that you know, deepest, most meaningful part of their lives while not blithely permitting radicalization into a terrorist cell. Now, I think we just have a lot more scholarship on what these interactions actually do online and where that line can be. As Facebook internationalized, that really coincided with the rise of groups like Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab and, of course, the Islamic State. Um, And so we had the advantage of just a lot more societal knowledge about how these groups function and, and what we should really be looking for. The other thing that was really a challenge in the early days and and has actually remained a challenge today is figuring out how you can do your job as a trust and safety team, keeping extremist content off the internet while not really, really pissing off people who are studying extremist content in other ways on the internet. So I remember an early point of pride for my team, and again, this is in the very early days, is we 
caught wind that someone at the FBI was really mad because we were getting too fast at removing terrorist profiles. And we were like, yes, this is great. But also like, I don't know, is it great? Like, are we are we actually, you know, compromising counterterrorist activity because of, you know, the counterterrorism that we were trying to do on our site? So that's been a relationship that's been really interesting to watch develop over time. So in terms of the languages, I find it very interesting when you say like we focused on the IRA in the beginning, which now I think seems very much like, oh, that was a that was a focus area. Um, so would you say that in languages and geographical areas that there's been a shift as well in terms of the focus of content moderation? The shift is that we are just so much more capable in so many more languages and areas. The thing to keep in mind, and again, this is sort of my early experience, Facebook just wasn't used by a lot of people in a lot of countries at the beginning. You know, I began there in 2007 and our international group at that time was Canada. And so not to say there's not extremism in Canada, but it, it was just a very different the cadence was really different, I guess. You know, we obviously, you know, in the mid 2000s, 2000 to, to 2010, there was a lot of what we would call terrorism, um, you know, sort of terrorist activity around the world. But those people weren't on Facebook. Facebook wasn't available in their country or, you know, they were using other platforms. And so it's important to remember in those early days, like we actually just didn't have that representation. And so there wasn't a lot of support or research, you know, internally on those areas because we had no users there. The catch-up game we had to play was we grew incredibly fast, especially in the Middle East generally. And that was definitely like, okay, now we got to get up to speed. The difference I'd say, or the shift I would illustrate now is that companies like Meta are everywhere. Everyone around the world is using a lot more of these platforms. It's much more standard. And so, you are now able to find trust and safety teams who are specialized much more regionally, who are really able to sort of dig in and do these investigations in language with the appropriate cultural context, things like that. So the Trust and Safety Professional Association, or TSPA, is is what we abbreviate it to. We are here to foster a community of practice between individuals who are engaged in the work of trust and safety online. And a lot of the way this field worked historically was, you know, you would come into trust and safety having never done something like this before because it was a new field. You'd work with a few people, you'd learn some lessons, and then you'd say, oh, cool. Well, maybe when I change companies, I'll have to do this all over again. And what we are really trying to do is notice, okay, there's all these various individual networks of professionals and, and sort of schools of practice. And what if instead of those all being kind of fragmented? What if we defragmented them? What if we brought everybody together who you know works in this space so they can share their ideas, they can learn from each other, they don't have to reinvent wheels that have in fact already been invented perhaps a few times over. And helping people build those relationships of trust with each other, we think is really critical to laying the foundation for all kinds of other really good work and sort of trust and safety generally and in spaces like terrorism and extremism specifically. You know, we've seen in the last decade the rise of these sorts of hash sharing coalitions, which fundamentally have to be built on relationships of trust. And they're not perfect. You know, there's all kinds of operational questions. I'm an operations person, so I'm always like, oh, I want to know more about that. But fundamentally, like they're great examples of people who are really trying to do the right thing at scale, working together rather than separately and siloed. And those are the sorts of relationships that we really seek to build in our community. You know, when we started in this, nobody was sharing anything. And, you know, over time, as people sort of understood, oh, there are other people working through these really hard questions, 
what if we don't, you know, you don't have to like have the same approach, but maybe you could at least share some notes, you know, sort of figuring out what mistakes have been made that we can avoid next time. How can we sort of work together faster, more efficiently? Obviously, then with answers that are individualized to each platform, not every approach is going to be applicable or or appropriate for every platform, but just having a space to have those types of conversations is the starting point. So do you have any examples you can share with us um, from your time at Facebook or from your current role at the Trust and Safety Professional Association? I'd say, as with a lot of other abuse areas, the latest challenge is also the perennial one. Uh, This stuff changes really fast. So, So much of the practice of trust and safety is being willing to constantly revisit your priors as new information becomes available. And that can lead you into, I'd say, some pretty unexpected spots. The Ukraine crisis is a really salient example of this recently, where you're seeing some, what I would say is responsive, fancy footwork coming out from a lot of the platforms. Meta, for example, previously prohibited praise for the Azov Battalion, but now is temporarily allowing it uh, as long as it's specifically tied to Azov's role in the defense of Ukraine. And that is a probably a pretty good set of available trade-offs. It's responsive to the situation, but like it can feel a little whiplashy because they kind of just only banned them like a few years ago. And now we're in this world where it's like, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, is it ever okay to post instructions about making Molotov cocktails? I would have said, oh, of course not. But really the question is not so much, is it, o- is it okay to have this content? It's a question of like, well, are we willing to ban this content, right? And in what circumstances? And Molotov cocktail example is a great one because um, why is it okay in this situation and wasn't okay in past situations? You know, really examining like, where are you comfortable saying this must always come down? And are there situations where in fact you realize, ooh, maybe we want to leave it up and really being able to look into why, why is that difference? What is the difference we're feeling here? There are some very interesting underlying factors there. One of the challenges we have policy-wise as well is just sort of the the duration of policy. I think temporary policies are a really interesting thing. Operationally, if like Molotov cocktail recipes are cool now, are they cool forever? Are you just going to like let these hang out? Is there like a sunset period where you say, okay, everyone's had their fun, but now we need to take down all the instructions? You know, it's there's just a lot of interesting like cascading ramifications from every decision you make in policy around this. And I know you asked for like, what's the latest trend? And that's what I mean. Like the latest trend is the one we've had all along. It's the, it's the perennial challenge. And it must also be very tricky to then like develop the knowledge and skills to pick up the context around like how you actually would assess that it's used by, you know, against the Russian invaders versus, I don't know, another purpose. So the context question is, is sort of, that's the question in a lot of ways. And what makes the practice of trust and safety so interesting is it's not just, you know, sort of what is the right policy decision, but can you then enact that policy decision at scale? And context is a huge challenge because even if you have these incredibly specific rules about, okay, in the following circumstances, if you can tick the following boxes, this is the action versus that is the action. But then you're asking potentially thousands of individual different people around the world, can they follow this checklist and can they Do they even have access to all the information they would need to be able to confidently check those boxes? And the answer is often no. Uh, And so it's, you do see a lot of what our practice is, is managing that loop between what is the rule supposed to do and what does the rule actually do in the operational machine? 
And where do you think the trust and safety or tech policy industry is headed, particularly in terms of counterterrorism? I think that terrorism for a long time, or counterterrorism, I should say, has really been a driver on a lot of both sort of platform policy development and regulatory policy development. I think that's going to continue to be true forever, probably. (laughs) Terrorism is one of these issues where it's very emotionally charged, understandably and, and necessarily. And that means it is very, often ends up quite central to the way that platforms end up talking through some of their hardest cases. And it's obviously um, a huge motivator or a huge motivating topic for for governments, for regulators. And so I think we're going to continue to see that be the truth. Something we're really keeping an eye on as a community of professionals is there's, I think, a lot of growing interest in like a very aggressive mandated turnaround times for reports on extremist content. And I think if those end up being more widely adopted, as I think they probably will be, you can see how folks might be interested in trying that in other areas as well. And so that's an interesting sort of gateway where people say, ah, yes, you know, you should be able to take down reports of terrorism in one hour. It's like, oh, all right. And it's like, and also meanness on the internet (laughs) in one hour. Like, oh, well, maybe, right? And uh, there's all kinds of really interesting ramifications to those sorts of mandates with a lot of unintended consequences, both for, for the companies and honestly for the end users as well. So content moderation at scale is often described as impossible um, in the sense that tech companies obviously won't get every decision right. Um, so what's your stance when it comes to trade-offs and error rates? I love this question. I often tell people that trust and safety is abbreviated to TNS a lot. And I often tell people that TNS actually stands for trade-offs and sadness uh, because the the true art of our practice is being able to weigh all the trade-offs in front of you, even the really difficult ones, especially the really difficult ones, and then help your stakeholders and your executives work through their sad feelings about all of those trade-offs. I think this is exactly right. This is the, the shift we're seeing in the way people are thinking about error rates and I remember watching this shift around 2010 or so when a company would say, oh, we have like a 95% or a 98% accuracy rate. And the public was just beginning to realize that 5% or 2% of a very large number, like those those percentages sound good, but like 2% of a large number is still a really large number. So it's an accuracy rate that high on paper looks awesome, but it got harder and harder to tell that story as people realized, well, now, wait a minute, this still means that like tens of thousands of decisions a week are going to be wrong. And that's not like a flippant thing. Like many of those wrong decisions are going to have like serious real world consequences. I think it's really good that we're starting to look at this question in terms of the trade-offs because that accuracy rate or like those tens of thousands of wrong decisions a week or even a day in some cases it's probably still better than all the available alternatives. You know, for, for example, like one suggestion you hear a lot is reviewers should just be given more time to review. Like maybe it's the speed of the decision that causes the errors. And we know that's sometimes true because decision fatigue is real and there absolutely are over-aggressive review quotas that can cause or even incentivize more like poor decision-making. But like, let's say we go with that and say, okay, instead of like three seconds or 10 seconds for each piece of content, you can look at it for as long as you want, like maybe 30 seconds or like five minutes or whatever you need to be confident in your choice. Would that help? 
right, is just one example. It's not clear that that would help because even if a reviewer isn't feeling rushed by a time limit or a utilization quota, that's not the same as being equipped to make better decisions. You know, how complex is the policy they're being asked to enforce? Is their review tool nimble enough to support that complexity? How recently did the policy change and how was the change propagated to all of these reviewers on the other side? Can they see the level of user data they need to make that decision? And even if you're then answering yes to all those questions, so you're in this world where you've invented the best tools and you've invested in this world-changing change management process and you've grown your review team to where everyone can take all the time they need, like you're still probably only going to get to like 99% accuracy and then you're paying like a gazillion dollars. And so you can see how those incentives start to slide. I think that it's really important for people to remember that what we are seeing in this ecosystem is a human problem. It is one expression of a human problem, right? But in the same way that like any human court system actually, like, you know, like a real world court system, I don't know, does does our Supreme Court have a 100% accuracy rate? Uh, you know, like it, this is a, this is a really, really, really big court system. And I think that we can wait around expecting humans to become perfect system operators, or we can grapple with the reality that like humans are pretty broken sometimes. And how do we as a society work at those root problems, right? And change those root incentives. And that all has to be happening together. So how can tech companies meaningfully increase their transparency as different counterterrorism and content moderation policies are implemented? And what does meaningful transparency entail in your view? I mean, as a practitioner, the dream is being able to trace differences in action rates to specific changes in policy. And that's what you, you really want to be able to track internally. And I think that as companies get better at tracking those things internally, that's something that's going to be really interesting to report out externally as well. And I think that's important for sort of the overall feedback loop because we see very much this pattern. And I think this is a good pattern. This is like a really good cadence that people are getting into where civil society groups, scholars will come and say, hey, there's a policy that you as a platform have it's not working. There's all these like bad outcomes. Please change this. And maybe the platform does. They're like, all right, yeah, wow, we didn't know. We'll change it. Did, did it make a difference, right? Like being able to actually track like, hey, we took this suggestion and this is now what happens on the other side of the system. I think that's tightening that feedback loop would be really, really important for making progress on a lot of these problems faster. I think the other important thing to note there is that platforms have to change things up a lot especially in the extremism space. And they need to have that freedom to respond to a, a landscape that changes overnight. It's really hard to know when you're in that decider seat. And this is not unique to trust and safety, right? This is true for any sort of first responder job. This is true for any, a lot of you know, just decision-making jobs in the world. When you're in that decider seat, it's really hard to know what long-term consequences, like real-world consequences, your changes will have. And so the more transparency companies can provide on not just like, hey, something was removed, but like why things are removed and in what circumstances, you know, whether that is tied to an old policy or a change in policy, that then allows the real world to give feedback on it, right? To be able to say, all right, now this is happening. Is that what you meant to have happen? And it, hopefully it always is and it's always good. Fantastic, right? But the better job we can do tightening that feedback loop, I think the the better results we're going to get in the real world. 
And kind of shifting them from transparency to also accountability. So what, in your view, constitutes an effective method or body of oversight for tech companies? I think one thing we can say is consequences, broadly. Um, I get a question, I've been now in the field for about 15 years, which is long for trust and safety and short for, you know, human memory. And um, people ask, what has changed in people's views of trust and safety? Or do do founders think trust and safety is like more important now than they used to? And my answer is like, yeah, actually. Like the, the reason we have something called the Trust and Safety Professional Association is that more and more people are recognizing, wow, this is actually, uh, this is a real practice. This is like a real thing that people need to focus on. And I would love to say it's because everyone realizes how important it is to keep people safe and build trust in the world. And like, yeah, it's a big part of it. But a lot of it is also that now, a few decades into tech, you can look back and there are all these cautionary tales littering the path of, oh, you didn't prioritize you know, safety in this way as a platform and you are not paying the price for it, whether that's reputationally with your users, whether that is regulation, you know, some combination. So I say that as the frame for my answer here, which is that I think consequences especially regulatory consequences, can actually have a huge impact on the way that platforms engage. It is not always the impact, perhaps, that we would want. I think it is really important to have well-informed regulations and well-informed requests of the platforms by the people who are critiquing it um, or critiquing them. I think governments and and civil society groups actually have a huge role in this, but I I do want to talk about the trade-offs there as well. Of course, I'm going to talk about the trade-offs. Like, for example, if if a platform is relying on a government for intel or support on like how to manage terrorism, can they fully trust that government's designations, right? The government often has really different incentives than the platform or, or the public in, in a lot of cases. And so there's like an incentives, there's potentially an incentives mismatch there that can be really tricky. It's amazing when civil society groups can give feedback, right? But like, who's who's paying for that? You know, like, are civil society groups supposed to be out there being like, hey, I found problems for you, here you go, right? And I think the easy answer is like, well, who's paying for that? Well, the platform should be. But if the content is, for example, being displaced to less defended platforms, you know, to platform, this displacement effect, I know, is one that you've talked about in your podcast before. If this content is migrating to those less defended platforms, those are less well-resourced, like, it's not so straightforward to say, well, the platform should pay for it. You know, this is a problem with almost all abuse areas. And in a way, extremism is one of the areas that's best positioned for this sort of partnership because governments and because civil society groups really track it. But I think that's why you see the challenges you do in this space as well. And how do you grapple with the weight of the responsibility um, that comes with this job? So trust and safety professionals are like, they're regular people. They are often, you know, they've like sometimes gone to university, sometimes they haven't. Most of them have never, you know, they didn't grow up planning to have a job in online trust and safety because of course, when they were growing up, this didn't exist yet. And so a lot of people fall into this line of work and sort of figure out what, what's going on. And then they decide, they make a decision to stay. And the reason people decide to stay is that they realize this is a place where they can have a tremendous amount of impact. And sort of the, the flip side of that is, yeah, then you do have this tremendous amount of responsibility. One of my experiences sort of early on in trust and safety was I came into work 
you know, just normal day, like, and of course, a normal day in trust and safety, every day is different. And that's actually one of the very cool things about working in this field. But I came into work that day, was just sort of doing my normal thing. And one of the things that I ended up, I don't even remember exactly how it unfolded. I was probably on Facebook, actually. And you start to, you know, you start to you start to feel these ripples of news, right? There's something's breaking in the world and you start to, you start to hear about it, this place, that place, you start to see posts. And it was the day of one of our country's worst school shootings. And it was my job to figure out what was happening. And, you know, here I am, I was, you know, in my twenties, which I like, you know, you like to think, you know, a lot in your twenties, but also the older you get, the more you realize, you know, nothing. Um, I was an English major in school and, you know, I had a dog at home and it was just, I'm just, you know, this normal person. It was my responsibility in that moment to figure out, was this shooting still happening? Was the shooter communicating using our platform? What happened if I found out that they were? Where do I go with that? How do we, you know, like do this mitigation? How, you know, you're suddenly caught in it's like you're there. And of course, you're not there. You're, you know, thousands of miles away behind a screen. You're not a first responder. You're not actually doing these evacuations or doing the CPR. But the choices you make in that moment are critically important to the outcome of that scenario. And I'll carry that day with me for the rest of my life. And that is an experience that so many of my peers either have had or will have. And that's just part of the job. And you have to have a lot of people in this field, right? There's just, there's so much human interaction happening on the internet at all times. My, my husband is also in trust and safety. And he says, you know, basically like imagine something happening, it's happening right now, right? Like, this, like the, the scale of human interaction is such that like anything bad that's happening is probably happening right now. And so you have to have you have to have a team of people around the world who are meeting that challenge every day. And you have to give them enough instructions to have some general sense of what to do. And you have to give them enough training to know where to proceed when the instruction manual has run out, right? When they're in some totally new landscape and they have to go back to just their principles and say, all right, this is what we do, right? And there are a lot of fields where that's true, right? Like first responders, I keep coming back to. Um, But it you're not typically as a first responder responding to a thousand car crashes in one day, right? It's the, it's the speed and the scale that I think really is very difficult to wrap your mind around until you're in it. Do you ever get like, you know, if then the, the criticism to tech companies gets like overwhelming, do you feel like that your story and that like that the daily sort of tasks that you've been given, that that is understood by critics? I think it's not understood. And, you know, it's funny because when I was first working at Facebook, you know, I would tell people, you know, you'd be like sitting on the plane and people say, so what do you do? Right. You're in the middle seat. And, you know, you'd say, oh, I work for Facebook. And people would be like, anyone, what people work for Facebook? Like people, people have, they have a team of anybody. Like, I think there is sort of this general sense of like, these platforms are machines that run themselves in a way. Um, And so I think there's in general, this gap of awareness there, but I think, the overall field, right? Like we estimate there's probably a couple hundred thousand trust and safety professionals around the world. And I think when people think about the trust and safety problems that platforms have, often they 
end up feeling mad about they think a lot about like the policies and they think a lot about like the outcomes, but they don't yet have a really clear picture of how those things happen and why they might in a system as large as the one you actually have to run every day. And that's not their fault, right? And this is why I think transparency is, is so important for companies to be providing. It's really important that the public can demand more of platforms. And it's really important that platforms feel they can tell their stories about like, okay, this is what it's actually like making this thing fly. It comes back to trade-offs, right? We are engaged in an incredibly large human experiment. And it's the first time any of us have done this in a lot of ways. And we all need to be figuring it out together. Trust and safety teams are a big part of that. And they're a, a very human part of that. The more certainly our association and people like me can can illustrate that for people and really bring them into that world and help them understand, like, this is what it is like. I think the better equipped people are going to be able to be to understand that experience. I mean, ideally, some of them see themselves in that experience, right? And be able to then construct the feedback that they have or the the real problems that they are facing as a result of platform action in a way that can then be incorporated and work. Something I, I really like to explain to people, and I, I always like to like really emphasize, I was an English major in college, right, is a lot of people can do this job. This job is not for everyone, right? It takes a very specific sort of person, but there are a lot of people out there who really do fit the description. And if people care about these issues, we're hiring, right? Like this is a field that is growing astronomically and there is no better time. I know I sound like a professional association shill, like there's no better time to join this field. But really like you have listeners who are listening to something called Tech Against Terrorism podcast, which means they're probably interested in tech and they're probably interested in terrorism. And guess what? If you're both of those things, you might be a really good trust and safety professional. We want more people joining this, right? We want more people coming in and seeing what this is like, because they might have really good suggestions. They might be able to spot things that we as a field haven't. Like all of those things are true. The more society comes into the process, I think actually the better the process becomes every time. A huge thank you to Charlotte Wellner for speaking to me. The entire team behind the podcast had chills listening to her, and I hope you'll agree hearing the human side of tech policy is really powerful. I'd recommend checking out part two of our deep dive into counterterrorism tech policy, where I speak to Jessica Mason, head of global policy and public affairs at Clubhouse, and Josh Baraki, head of trust and safety at Zoom. We explore what informs counterterrorism policies, how the COVID pandemic has changed the landscape and some of the challenges tech companies face in implementing these policies. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. To find out more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism, where you can find resources on today's topic. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another episode. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.